Hi, and welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, Deputy Editor of Film and TV Craft at IndieWire. And my guest today, we're welcoming back Barry Jenkins and his longtime cinematographer, James Laxton, to talk about their new limited series, Underground Railroad, which hits uh, Amazon Prime today. And this season of the Toolkit is being presented by HBO Max. HBO's original limited series, The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant, focuses on Kidman's Grace Frazier, a successful therapist, and her devoted husband, Jonathan, played by Grant, and their young son, who attends an elite private school in New York City. A chasm opens in Grace's seemingly perfect life, a violent death, a missing spouse, and a chain of terrible revelations. All episodes of The Undoing are streaming on HBO Max now, and it's for your Emmy consideration for outstanding limited series and all other categories. This morning I read the Sight and Sound piece, which I loved, and there's this quote here that really kind of got my mind thinking in terms of yours and James's collaboration and, and, and the language of, of, of underground. And you talked about, um, you know, doing the research and, and, you know, the conditions that the slaves lived in were, you know, absolutely horrific. But you said, I felt like in order for me, Barry Jenkins to exist in order for the lineage, the legacy from those folks to me, uh, to have been strong enough that I could actually be alive in this country. They had to have had fortitude through love, through community, through family, even through building of fractured families out of the degradation of being separated from their kin. So I knew there had to be moments of very realistic and grounded beauty they they could um, they could control and hold on to. That really hit home for me because there's really two elements of this when I watched the whole series, which was it's very clearly you want to show the horror of slavery, but then there's also an element of the spirit of these people and that is in the book. And how do you get that? I mean, obviously these people have spirit, but how are you going to get to that with your cinema and with your story? And it, it strikes me that so much of that and that spirit comes to comes back to a lot of the language that you and James are creating here in the imagery and the beauty. And it almost feels like to some degree, it's a reflection of Cora's internal state. Am I completely off about that or? No, no, no. I, I would say you're definitely on about that. And I think that, you know, it's kind of a testament to James for being so fluid in the way we build shots and the way we build scenes, because basically everything you're saying to me, what I interpret that as is it comes down to the actors it really comes down to the actors. And and if there's a moment when the actors, despite, especially in the first and the last episodes, despite the conditions they're living within, when you see this this connection amongst the, uh, amongst the characters, when you see that the actors are portraying the characters in a way that they are self-possessed, I don't know, it kind of opens up all these things. And one of the things that James and I talked about was kind of removing edits uh, from the show wherever we could. So instead of setting up a new shot, creating a new shot uh, through camera movement, I think part of that, when you have this continuous, unbroken moment, I think the spirit you're talking about, which feels like a very almost ethereal thing, but I think a performance, and, and when you capture performance, um, I think it can be quite grounded. And I think that's that's where the balance between the two um, uh, arrives to me in the show. And James, in that kind of extended moments in the way that you know, we were talking before about, you know, these chapters, um, different locations, different states of mind for Cora, but it seems as if a through line here is that kind of longer camera. And, and also it, it I, I don't, I don't want to use language that's inappropriate here, but like a dream, like almost the magical realism to a certain degree is in these extended moments. And, and to a certain degree, am I wrong? 
No, I think that's that's true. I I, I think that like the when you the, the pace by which the camera moves can definitely sometimes feel like a dream in many ways. Mm-hmm. And I think um, you know, sometimes dreams can be the you know more powerful than than reality in terms of how they are experienced by the dreamer. Um, and I, you know, I sort of say, I think we tapping into that pace by which the camera moves and how it moves from one thing to an, one person or one character to another character or to another thing, let's say, for example, from a, uh, from Caesar to a train or, or whatnot, the pace by which that camera movement w- was designed is, in, is intended to sort of emphasize that. Um, so hey, sure. hey, Chris, yeah. I think, I think dreamlight is the, dreamlike is the right way to describe it. You know, one of the things that, that James and I talked about a bit was, you know, these people's bodies were so restricted that their minds must have been so robust. You know, I imagine that their subconscious was highly activated. And so I think when you talk about dreamlike, I don't I don't think we literally manifested as dreams, but it is sort of like the subconscious, you know, and allowing the camera to sort of and especially I think for these folks, spirituality was a very robust thing, you know, in a certain way. It was kind of one of the main things that fortified them. So it, I, I know you said, you said, oh, I don't want to speak out of turn and say dream. But I think it's just semantics. I, I think you are hitting on, you know, one of our intentions, which is to, as you said, how do we relay the subconsciousness of our main character? And how do we explore characters whose bodies are restricted? For me, we think about Afrofuturism. It's always talking about things in the future, but not things in the past. I think their, their imaginations must have been extremely, extremely robust. And I think that camera movement, that dreamlike quality you're speaking of, uh, speaks to that. Obviously, this is a long project, something you worked on. I don't want to say it like came to you right away. But is that sense of how these two, how you would do both in terms of how you saw this movie influencing, is that something that kind of came natural to you in reading this book and thinking about it as a movie? Or was that balance something that you really had to find in terms of how one was going to go you know, have both present moving in and out. I think it was, it, it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't pre-thought, you know, uh, <laughs> it, it kind of happened organically. It kind of had to because of the way we shot the show, you know, this is a 116 day shoot. You're doing like, I don't know, on average, you know, at least five pages a day, you know, and every day there's something heavy on the call sheet. So there wasn't the opportunity to go. This moment is very grounded in reality. And this moment is to use your term mm-hmm. dreamlike. We didn't have that luxury. But I think, you know, I think James and I came at this from the same point of view. And I think whatever scene was on the call sheet, I think we just, if there was anything that was organic, we organically knew this is a moment where I use the term forthright. I want to present this image very forthrightly. And oftentimes we would shoot those those scenes, the very grounded in reality depictions of the institution of American slavery. We would shoot those scenes and we would start out going, what is... What is the the single the, the the most singular shot that we can use to convey what this feels like, and what's the most appropriate amount of coverage to convey what this feels like? And sometimes it was just the wide. I mean, the first scene that anyone has whipped in the show, it's just the wide. And if you go to our footage, that's all we shot of it. <laughs> that's all. And even in that wide, talk about movement. We start in the wide and then organically, just in the moment, you know, we began to move the camera off that scene because I was like, okay, I think I've seen enough. They can't look away. And so now as opposed to looking at this thing, now let's go to them and let's experience them experiencing this trauma so we can see how the ripple effects, nobody watching is actually being uh, physically harmed. And yet the harm is just as great. And so it was like sort of working, operating in that mode. I will say we shot, 
South Carolina was the first episode we shot, and we shot all the underground train stations at the same time. Then we shifted and we went and shot the Georgia episode and the Mabel episode. So in a way, we started out, you know, with this kind of psychological horror. There are dreamlike qualities in that episode. And then we jumped right into reality. And so I think maybe doing those two back to back, it kind of created the, the, the blueprint. But, but James, I don't think we intellectualize this has to be grounded and this has to be uh, spiritual or dreamlike. Mm. No, I think it's probably just a very internal gauge that we're always in touch with as we're witnessing, like blocking a scene, for example, or the first establishing shot in a scene. There's a bit of, a, I'm, I'm sure you, you, know, you have in, in you, and I think we all have as filmmakers inside of us, some internal mechanism that goes, ah, as you sort of said already, I've had enough of this, let's move on. And I think you know, being in touch with that, that gut, sort of very internal, personal decision-making part of your, part of your brain or your body, um, you know, allows you to sort of, you know, ride both those things that you're mentioning, Chris, that sort of, you know, heightened realism and then the, the truthfulness of things. And I think, you know, I think what you have here is just, you know, a set of filmmakers that have uh, at the core of who they are in, inside um, some deep beliefs about, about, you know, depicting this time in our, in our histories as Americans. And I think, you know, for example, like, you know, you have Michael Bay make this movie. I think you have a very different version of violence. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's, yes. Thanks. I'm trying to silent laugh on my end of the call. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I think, I think like it's just about who we are as filmmakers. And I just think that, that that's a very internal thing to talk to, to like reference, I think, and, and to know when you want to move on from something and, and, and by what pace you move to something. Um, I think is, is just about who we are. Uh, this is my 140th podcast in Michael Bay's uh, Underground Railroad. It's the first one that's taken my next question out of my head. Hold on for a second. I have to remember where I, where I have to remember. I, don't, I had somewhere I wanted to go with this, and I, I, now I can't stop thinking of that. Um, oh, so uh, one thing I just wanted to say to the listeners, um, uh, what Barry was saying was the first one was South Carolina, which is that second one, that kind of um, – I don't know how to even describe that that world. And then and Georgia was the pilot and Mabel was the last one. So so they went then back to the plantation, did that beginning and end. Um, just so and, people and follow every on. and every scene that takes place yeah. in an underground railroad uh, tunnel, yeah. we shot those like day two, yeah. day two, <laughs> day three, day five. Yeah. Barry, I'm curious um, about how you thought in terms of. Um, the various chapters, um, you know, James and I were talking, we're going to talk a little bit after this about this too, about, um, you know, obviously you're creating different locations, um, literally different states. Um, he's creating a slightly different look for each of them. Um, but it feels to me to a certain degree, both, you know, both the mise-en-scene and the, and the, and the cinematography, it seems as if to a certain degree, my take on it was, um, you're thinking in terms of, externalizing Cora's internal state. Like this is where her story is right now. And that is in relationship to the landscape and James's photography and how you're even thinking about the cinematic language. Is that, is that? Yeah, yeah, that, that's correct. And we actually, that started before uh, James and I even shot Bill Street. Uh, we did the writer's room for this show prior to production on if Bill Street could talk. And in the writer's room, you know, you sit around, it was like an eight week writer's room. And you just pick everything apart. And so we really got granular. And we try to, without asking Colson directly, uh, because Colson is very coy about giving direct answers, which I, th- which I think was for the best. I think it helped the show 
sort of stand on its own. Um, it's heavily inspired by, and it's, you know, and all the seeds are planted in the book, but he allowed it to be its own thing. Um, but we decided, trying to get inside Colson's head, that the reason why South Carolina is the way it is, is because of some yearning on Cora's part. And the reason why when she arrives at North Carolina, there's a block is because she doesn't want to continue to get further away from what she's left behind in South Carolina. And so there was this 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 actualized um, choice to say that every state that Cora arrives at looks the way it does, feels the way it does because of how Cora's feeling. She's literally manifesting these states. And there is a line that we, we cut out of the show, um, but features very prominent in the book where when they're leaving Georgia, the station master says, there's two trains coming, you know, one's going this way, one's going that way, you know, can't, can't be sure which whichever one, but you got to choose one. And if they choose a different train, maybe they arrive in South Carolina and it feels a completely different way. And so we kind of allowed ourselves to sort of chase that. And it was great for James and I, because I told Colson, I don't want to do this as a feature. I want to do it as a 10 hour show. And, you know, we're filmmakers and we love what we do. It gives us a chance to play in different genres, you know, but the different genres are appropriate because of the state of mind that Cora is in. So that was it exactly. And it started way back in the writer's room. And then I have to imagine part of it is also, you know, um, and James had mentioned this before, too, you know, melancholy San Francisco, you know, Moonlight's your hometown and, and, and Beale Street is very much Harlem, New York. And this is one where I have to imagine going with James and Mark and and going to locations and like actually finding this place is a certain is is, is, is Chris, and having to build Chris, it. Chris, you have no idea. You have no <laughs> idea. I think I think the town that is North Carolina in the show, which is fucking fantastic mm-hmm. was maybe like the fifth town that not only that we scouted but we had decided was going to be the town mm-hmm. uh, because because originally we planned to shoot this uh like half in the state of georgia half in upstate new york mm-hmm. and we actually scouted upstate new york uh, but because of certain realities <laughs> we had to switch everything to the state of georgia and so yeah i mean james and mark freeberg did so much scouting i think i saw maybe a third of what y'all saw Mm -hmm. and ultimately it was one of those things where it was like you know i'm glad you mentioned medicine and moonlight in particular because i think this was made in a way very similar to those especially resources wise it was made very similar uh to those where it was like what do we have just just tell us what we actually concrete have and we will find a way to make, not even make that shit work, to make it seamless. Um, and that was kind of, got to go, what would you say, James? Oh my gosh, yeah, definitely. No, no, there, it, there was, at some point, it just felt like, um, how do we just make sure these images get on yeah. screen? <laughs> you know, that there's, there's a priority level to where, you know, at some point you just need to see, you know, just see things happen. Um, but I would say also too, all that scouting really informed when we ended up knowing we were in Georgia, uh, you know, how, how Georgia needed to sort of, how we needed to adapt to Georgia, uh, rather to, to sort of reference what, what Indiana would, would be like, for example, or Tennessee would be like. So all that scouting was still, I think, very much in, uh, in efforts to the, the final thing. And Barry, you said something in uh, the Sight and Sound piece about leaving the structures up and that being important. So, you know, in a lot of the cases, yeah. like, Mark built a lot of this stuff in a, in a field and, and, and it was important to you that you, you left these things up. Yeah, it was, you know, we did, uh, all these portraits. Some of them have been seen in the, the, the early teasers that were, that were released and they feature primarily background actors, not our principal cast. 
And, you know, when we were uh, setting up to make the show, I was surprised at how uh, expensive it was and how expensive the budget was going to be. I just assumed that through scouting, we would find locations that we could just step into. Um, you know, the plantation houses still exist because people get married in them for some strange reason. Um, and yet adjacent to those houses, you know, where the slave quarters would have been, which are normally 400, 800, you know, half a mile uh, away, uh, 400, 800 yards, um, those things don't exist. They've all been raised. And so, you know, our from a production standpoint, we had to, if we wanted it to be authentic, we had to build it all from scratch. And so we did. We built um, an entire slave quarter. We planted cotton. We planted sugar cane. We installed, uh, you know, a, a, a sugar press. I mean, just all these different things, planted all this vegetation. And I didn't want, one, our background actors were just so damn good. It was important to me that the first teaser you see featured nothing but background actors. That first teaser in the train station is nothing but background actors. And there's two women. This woman, uh, Pam Smith, I remember. I think I remember her name being, and, and LaShawns. They're the two, two women in the center at the end of the shot. Otherwise, it's all background actors. And that was important to me because as we were making the show... One, sometimes, you know, James and I made Moonlight with one camera. So there'd be times where we would just go, okay, we can do the rest of the day's work with one camera. And we would split a camera off and we would just do these portraits, these dollies in and out on our background actors. Because people are always talking to me about the white gaze. How do you deal with the white gaze? And like, well, we only refer to the white gaze. We never talk about the black gaze or just the gaze. And so we just started grabbing background actors and just doing all these portraits. Um, and I realized... There is a story for so many other characters in the air quote backgrounds of all these scenes. And I thought, you know what? When we walk away from here and Mark Freebird agreed, we're not going to destroy these sets. You know, we're not going to tear them down. We're going to leave them standing. And that way, if someone wants to come behind us and tell another story, a different story, because there are so many very unique niche things that we couldn't explore in the show, the sets will be there. And so long as they give us a little bit of a window for our show to come out mm -hmm. and people to experience this world for the first time, they can have them. And people have seen that in that in that trailer, that train that train station one. But that's an interesting. It's it, while you're watching it, I'm thinking in particular towards the last few episodes when we do go into those mm -hmm. um, portraits. It's it is a it is a pause. It's a moment, and it's a moment. It feels to me like a moment of honoring to a certain degree, but it mm -hmm. sounds like part of it is also a, a conscious effort of, of of this gaze as you had just described. I think it's both. I think the gaze for us at the time was subconscious. Mm -hmm. We always have a, a day zero, mm -hmm. um, and and this and this one we had like multiple day zeros. I think we had like two mm -hmm. day zeros, where where we get the actors in wardrobe, hair and makeup, and we take them to the locations, whatever locations we have. And it's like a camera test. It's for the hair and makeup and stuff. But there are day zero shots in the show. Uh, one of the most intense moments in the show was a day zero shot, which is amazing. Um, and it was the first time we did uh, these portraits, these gaze um, images. And it featured the principal cast. And then we were filming the, I think it was on day one, James. No, it couldn't have been day one because it was so rainy. But I remember we, we started doing them again when we were doing the South Carolina episode. Because uh, I just saw the showreel, and, and they're in the, the portrait showreel, which I'm calling the gaze now, James. Um, and uh, and I just remember thinking, huh, there's something here. It was when we got to the Georgia episode that it started to feel honorific. It's a woman named Miss Wendy 
who she was our plantation life sort of uh, expert. And she would come out and she would show all the background actors. This is how you uh, chop the sugar cane. This is how you work the cotton field. And it's a job that she's done. You know, whenever people come to make these movies or these shows, she's sort of like the the expert. And just, you know, we're working. I forget what scene we were filming on the main shoot, but James was operating the portrait camera. I had my I had my ace guy on the portrait camera and, and, uh, and the, uh, the other operator was doing the main scene. And I grabbed Miss Wendy and I said, hey, here you go. Just stand here and show me yourself. And we did the portrait. And once we finish, and it's quick, it happens, it takes like two minutes. She, you remember this, James? She broke down crying. Yeah, broke down crying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know why? Because she's been on mm-hmm. all these sets. She's been helping people, you know, organize all this authenticity. And nobody ever bothered to turn the camera on her. And so I think in that moment, I realized it is honorific. Because someone like Miss Wendy knows so much more about this world, has so much more to say about the story. And I think that... You know, the reason why James and I tell stories with sounds and images is because we think there's something you arrive at that you can't through literature. No, I think there's certain things literature can do that cinema can't, but there's something something you arrive at. And this woman's essence is so strong that I was like, oh, yeah, it doesn't even need to be a scene. Let's just, you know, if are you willing, will you just show me yourself? And and that was where the, the honorific quality arrived. And that was maybe like 40 days into the shoot um, when, when that happened, when it clicked and I realized, oh, shit. This is what we're doing. And we're going to take a brief pause for a note from our presenting sponsor to talk about the HBO Max original series, The Flight Attendant, starring the amazing Kelly Kuko. And I added the word amazing to the copy there because she's absolutely gold in this series. It's the story of uh, how an entire life can change in one night. A flight attendant wakes up in the wrong hotel, in the wrong bed with a dead man, and no idea what happened. It's a dark comedic thriller, and it's based on the novel of the same name by the New York Times bestselling author Chris Bajillion. And all episodes are now streaming on HBO Max. It's for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other categories. And now back to my conversation with Barry and James. And, and James, um, something that um, you and Barry started doing with Beale Street. Now, this isn't really, I don't want to get too techy here, but there is something about the presence of these people and in portraits and the way that you and Barry are framing now with these large formats, because it does feel like part of your language now in terms of that sense of the presence of these people and how they relate to their to their backgrounds. And it feels like that's, I mean, I'm sure you could have done this with a smaller sensor, but it does feel like almost like that's ingrained into um, how Barry and you are seeing these characters. Yeah, I'd say, I mean, I think the history of this goes back a long way, even to meme format portraiture. I mean, you know, these are these are large format portrait cameras that were being used for portraiture for decades early before today. Now we have large format digital sensors, or I guess you could say even sort of the 70, 70 millimeter IMAX uh, film cameras as well. But the idea of why portraiture works in a large format um, so well, I think, is, is, you know, comes far before us. Um, but I think there's something about, for sure, the way you have depth of field fall off and how, how um, physical, physical um, features sort of, if it's arms or legs or faces or whatnot, sort of feel pronounced, um, you know, within the frame and how the lens captures it. I think all this, all that kind of, to me anyway, very much feels like uh, an effort to get inside the character. And I think that, you know, from, from, uh, from medicine, but definitely for Moonlight, 
and definitely for Beale Street, you know, Barry and I are just really love to sort of put the camera in the, in the characters' perspectives. And I think the large format systems go a long way to sort of aiding, aiding our efforts into that. Yeah, and Chris, it was something I was hesitant on uh, when, when James pitched uh, a Lexus 65 for Bill Street. <laughs> and, then, and then it was, and then we used, it's like the same lenses they shot uh, Rogue One with. And I was like, well, Rogue One looks dope. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, and I thought, because I knew that was going to be like a chamber piece almost. And so I mm-hmm. thought, this is crazy. Um, but then we did it. And I was like, oh, no, this is dope. Especially when we got to show the film in IMAX, the two times that we did. Um, in this case, I mean, we, we, we did five hours of portraits, Chris. It's a 10-hour show. We have a five-hour reel of just portraits. I mean, that's how many of them we did. We also always shot them at 48 or, 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 or 72 frames. So, so there's that. But we have a lot of them. And, and, uh, Bickle sent me, James, the, uh, the, 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 the gaze, the, the little piece. And you remember mm-hmm. that guy, Mr. King? He's the, the tall, slender black oh, yeah. gentleman who, uh, who has like the, the, tuck, the almost tuxedo looking suit on. He kind of stands with a slant. Yeah. Oh, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. Different guy. Different guy. This, this guy Different is guy. straight as an arrow. I mean, he is just uh, his, uh, oh. his, his portrait, which it goes head to toe. Mm. His portrait. I don't know why, but you guys come way wide on his. I mean, it is. I mean, it's mm. insane. It is insane, and, and it's because of the, the large format, no doubt about it. And, and it's it almost feels like a moving um, media uh, medium format still image. It's kind of what it feels like, and there's something about the way because they're very still. I, someone said uh, uh, Barry Jenkins and James Laxon doing uh, what is it called the unicorn or the meme challenge? What was the thing where everybody stays still? <laughs> Oh, very funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But I love that on this format, the very small details and someone's eye shifting mm. or their jaw settling over the duration of the shot, that's where the life comes from. Mm. You know, I was also just want to mention too, uh, uh, I always feel like in some way, part of my job is to sort of contextualize a scene as a cinematographer. We're sort of con- putting emphasis or context on a certain character, let's say, or a certain sort of sensibility or emotional thread. You know, these portraits, I think for sure, for me anyway, contextualize the all the whole telling of this entire story in many ways. Um, and they sort of put, I guess, our audiences, hopefully anyway, in a, in a place where they can sort of see and experience our journey from the context of, of the whole, as Barry talked about already, these sort of, in quotations, background act, uh, extras or background actors or background characters sort of filling in the entire black experience as opposed to just sort of seeing this from maybe, which which is true, of course, course perspective, and that's definitely clearly true, but to sort of round out that perspective and round out that contextualization of, of what of, of what the broader experience was uh, and what we're trying to say with this, with this show, I think these portraits go a long way in doing that as well. You know, Barry, I remember you, you took time out last spring to, for a profile we wrote on, um, uh, Lawrence Davis, the hairstylist on this. And I remember mm-hmm. something that you had said to me because he had been working on this. And I mean, obviously he's a very talented man and, and, and did incredible work on this. But one thing that you had mentioned was um, that you were very conscious of the fact that he was going to be the first person that a lot, a lot of these casts dealt with in the morning in the, mm-hmm. and, and that these were going to be long days and these were going to be brutal days. And it was something that stuck with me because it seems as if that is something that you were very conscious of throughout this whole process including for yourself of what, of what making this was going to be and yeah. what the experience. And I, and I, I think it may be, be different for James and a cast member for you, for you were, you were speaking of the woman that was a consultant, but it feels like that's something that, um, 
I, I read that there was a therapist on set, but it seems like th this is something that you wanted to take into account in terms of this production and what it was going to take to get through these 116 days of shooting. I, I did, and especially for Tuso, who was there just about every single damn day. Um, you know, I will say they weren't long days because I think for at least 65% of the shoot, we did uh, French hours, which was great. Um, and, uh, and James and his guys and gals were very accommodating, you know, in, in making that work. You know, we left very few things on the uh, uh, on the call sheet when those days were done, and some of the days were brutal. Part of that was because of the damn weather, um, but but I think what what evolved one, I think Lawrence and his crew did do a great job of getting the actors through through their their uh, their fixings, you know, through hair and makeup and onto set in as good a mood as they possibly could be knowing the weight uh, they were carrying they were carrying but then the crew it just felt like right it just felt like a community on this one James I mean it really did and the therapist you speak of Kim white who I call I called miss Kim she was just so she was so active you know she was so activated you know typically you know myself or James we can call action a cut you know we can stop something we can start something and then it was Miss Kim who was above us and she could stop us <laughs> and there was a day where she pulled me off set and I don't know if you guys even saw her pull me off set but everybody's working and then I'm just gone and she's like nope you have to take a break and you have to talk to me before you can keep going um, but yeah it, it, it was important I don't think there was any other way to, to make the show I guess there's a way where you're just this person who you're just driving the crew, you're driving the cast, and you're trying to, maybe through method, trying to brutalize them in a way that reflects the brutality they're trying to reflect through performance. But I don't think this was worth it. I don't think anything is worth that. And so we chose to work the other way, you know, which was to make sure everyone was cared for, trusting that when it was time to, to go, when we called action, everybody could get there. I um, mean, you've seen the show, you know, I think they did. <laughs> yeah. Cause I imagine James is just moments where you don't know necessarily when this is going to hit you. Or, I mean, there's some, I, I mean, I imagine, I can imagine some scenes that were very hard to film, but also some of those scenes can be very technical. I imagine also. Um, so, but I have to imagine the, the weight of something like this. Um, you don't know when that's going to like kind of sneak up on you or you need a, you need to take, take stock. Right. Definitely. I'd also say too, you know, sometimes you go to work some days and you know what's ahead of you. And so you prepare yourself emotionally to kind of get through that moment and, uh, and, and process accordingly. And then some days your guard is down and, and the little, the little intimate moment hits you hard. And so, yeah, I think for me, it was oftentimes the, the latter that, that hit me the hardest because I would sort of come to work, you know, on the, on the days we were doing a, a very difficult scene and I would sort of prepare myself emotionally and mentally. And then, you know, uh, for a scene that had a little small uh, hint of, of, of tragedy or, or a, a symbolic sense of tragedy or something to that effect. Uh, those are the ones that would sort of actually hit me, hit me the hardest. I know, man. This shit, this shit got me twice, man. It got me twice. And one time was unexpected and one time was very expected. Uh, we did the big Anthony scene, which most, and I, I guess it was maybe a blessing in disguise most of the really big set pieces here we did in a single day. We just had no choice because we had to get through so much more, so much material. So that all took place on one day, merc mercifully, thank God. And I, I thought I was fine, bro. I thought I was fine. And I remember when we had the scene, and I don't know why we scheduled it this way, but we had another scene to do afterwards where Hezekiah then has to look at, at what's happened. And I just, I just completely blanked. We finished the scene. I went over. Eli Everett, who plays Big Anthony, 
got him down off the harness. And there's all this mass of people. And I turned and Possum was there. Uh, Possum is this guy, Jared Morgan, who's our, our steady cam and A camera operator. He's brilliant. All the wonderful camera moves you see in the show. It's this guy, Jared Morgan, who he's the A camera operator on Atlanta. And somehow through the blessings of the Lord, he came to us. And, uh, and me, him, and James, I mean, them boys just made magic. But anyway, I turned to Possum. That was like his third day on set, baby. And he looked at me and he goes, sir, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. And then like 20 seconds later, I'm off in a field by myself crying. And and I'm, I'm out there for like five minutes. I walk around the whole set on the outskirts. And then I come back and James has laid down two pieces of track. And I'm like, oh yeah, shit, we have another scene to shoot. <laughs> and, so, and so on that day, because James was strong, the production kept going because my ass, I had to take 15. I had to take 15. <laughs> the other one that got me was The Burial and Mabel, which which was such a sweet, wonderful, dignified. I mean, it was just the actors took that and they just made it so special. And it just it snuck up on me. And I was sitting in my chair and we did that first take. And this is one of the things where come back to this idea of the dreamlike quality because we filmed it uninterrupted. We just did it. Every time we did it, it was just one continuous um, uh, take. It just kind of it, it bubbled up on me, and I was sitting in my chair, and I was like, "Damn, I'm crying." It's like I'm crying, but but I think in that case it was kind of tears of joy, kind of tears of joy. I, I don't know that one. I couldn't describe the Big Anthony one. I understood that one, but that one of May was like, "What is happening to me right now?" <laughs> I, you know, Barry, I asked uh, James this question uh, before you hopped on, and I'm I'm curious how you're going to answer it. Um, Obviously, you did this one the way you did it, and it worked, and it's, you know, I, I, I doubt, um, I don't know that you would do it any differently, but now that you do have a limited series under your belt, and um, you've gone through this 116-day shoot, I mean, it is a little insane that you and James did all 10 episodes, and I'm curious, um, you know, I know you got Lion King next, but I mean, it's 2021, the idea that you could return to uh, serial programming is not is not unheard of. I'm curious in terms of you directing as being the guiding creative force of this, uh, we'll call you the showrunner, that idea that you would direct all of these. I mean, once again, I, I think maybe you felt like you had to do that for Underground, but if your thinking has changed a little bit, if you look at someone like Fincher and Mindhunter and see how he does something like that, um, I'm wondering. I'm wondering what your thought is about this on the other side. In that, in that I'm, sense. I'm glad I wasn't here for James's answer because it can't, it can't, it can't affect my answer. So in prep, I would have told you never again. Early in production, I would have told you never again. Early in post, I might have still said never again. And now I'm like, when can we do this again? Mm-hmm. Only because it was. And I don't know how how James described it. It was kind of electric. I mean, it's 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 crazy to say this, almost deranged, because it's a very expensive show. But I mean, we were right on the razor's edge always. But which I mean, Chris, I don't know if James admitted this, uh, but I'm saying it out loud. We shot design the first three episodes, so the pilot, South Carolina, so chapter one, chapter two, and chapter ten, we very detailed shot designed. Everything else, because the prep caught up to us. We're just kind of like maybe on the on the weekends we're organizing thoughts. We we start our day. We stand around eating a burrito. We organize our thoughts, but it is just go. Mm-hmm. It is just go. And and there's something that I I don't think that going back to medicine for melancholy and maybe moonlight. 
is, is those two felt kind of this electric, but because of what was at stake, this was just, it was so immediate. And there were things that would happen that the actors would do that as a showrunner and as a DP, we would know, oh man, three weeks from now, we're going to do that other thing. Let's just change the whole thing three weeks from now because this is just so much better. And so it almost felt like it's not live theater. And live theater, you know, you do it one night and then you see all these wonderful things. The second night, it morphs a little bit. By the eighth or ninth night, you know, and I'm talking about a, not talking about a Broadway show, it can kind of be a whole different play. That's kind of how the show felt. Where as we made it, it kind of became what it was. And so long-winded way of saying, yeah, I would do it again. Because, man, I think looking at it now, I'm like, yo, that was kind of awesome. It was a hell of a ride. And it was terrifying. But, man, man. What what, what'd you say, James? I, I, you know, I think I sort of said, you know, it definitely wasn't the same answer. Um, <laughs> but, no, I think I think it would just felt – what I think it, what, it, what it did say was I just felt like this project, it seemed to sort of ask that of us. It sort of needed us to, to be there on a daily basis and not – take a background sort of general role it, it seemed to want something a bit more tangible and I think that I think the, I think the that's evident I would say in in watching the show I think you very much see our own particular perspective I, I will say this this character of all the characters in our work is so fully fully explored and fully fleshed and I think that's another benefit as well mm-hmm. so fully explored that too so was allowed to evolve the, ca- the character in real time and our filmmaking evolved to meet her. And I think that's a really, really wonderful thing that you can only do over this kind of duration. And also was hella fucking exciting. <laughs> he, he, <laughs> also, too, I, think, I think we sort of trained for this moment yeah. as well, I would yeah. almost say too. I think our previous experiences allowed us to be able to sort of make the kind of decisions that we were able to make on set really quickly and, and very much in, in tune with our own like sort of really intimately personal decision-making process. Um, I think the ability to do that doesn't come easy and it kind of, I think it came from, from experiences before as well. Um, and I think it comes with a lot of trust. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, working with, uh, you know, working with each other for a very long time, knowing that you enjoy the editor is going to have, you know, a very intimate personal experience that you guys know each other for a long time. The same goes for, you know, Nick Bertel and, and Mark Freeberg and Caroline Eslin. I mean, like, all these people that know each other so well at this point, I mean, you know, you sort of have the synergy and you can, because of that, those relationships have the ability to work um, you know, in, 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 a, in a really sort of symbiotic way and in, in, in that's like really in tune without a lot of like, let's have a meeting about this. Let's have a meeting about this. And you can just sort of say, no, no, no this idea. And we go, yeah. Well, I have to imagine with Barry at the center of the de- decision-making tree, it's if, if there is a shorthand or if there's someone that already has a sensibility, it's things don't get clogged up. Well, the, the, the shorthand is everybody knows that every weekend they're, they're probably going to get new pages and, <laughs> and, and we just got to pivot. Um, but, but I think they were always good pivots. They were always good pivots. Um, yeah, but, but James is right. Without it's, it's, it's not enough for me to say I would do it again. I think you have to have the right community uh, to be able to, to pull this off. Um, and, and everyone James named, they were just so about it. I mean, some of the some of the curveballs we threw, um, you know, I don't want to give a spoiler, but what happens at the top of that hill in the very last episode, that was only written maybe four days before we went to shoot um, that, that scene because it's not in the book. And it didn't occur to me that that was what uh, she was going to do. Um, 
And then it did occur to me that that was what she was going to do. And so when you watch that scene, Chris, Mm -hmm. that is take one. Unrehearsed. All those moves, all that and everything she's doing. That's take one unrehearsed and i think i think the show kind of evolved to the to the place where that was what the show was going to be um and and my goodness um i think james and the crew were just so dialed in uh, that it made it possible i gotta let you go but thank you it, it, it it's amazing uh you know and uh, everybody down in georgia you guys had to have been down there for like a half a year right year so, well, yeah. well we went down in september to, yeah. to do the do the pickups and like 90 percent of our crew came back which typically doesn't happen you know that these people you know seven months later 90 percent of the crew comes back um uh, and especially given the conditions so yeah it was uh we had a good time, man. We, that's why I, w- I want to step on my, my, my quote in that Lawrence article. Long days, brutal. <laughs> no, the days weren't super long, actually. Um, and, and it was taxing, but it was also really, really fulfilling. I have to tell you a funny story. I was interviewing uh, Mark Friedberg for The Joker when you guys were down there shooting. I live in Brooklyn and on a little side street in this uh, the fire, you know, one of those you know, fire trucks are going down, just these huge alarms. And one of those moments where you're, when you're talking on the phone, you just have to like pause for 10 seconds. And I apologize. And Mark goes, no, could you put your phone up to the window? I've been in fucking Georgia for 200 days. I want to hear, <laughs> I want to hear the New York city street. <laughs> that, that sounds like Mark. That He's sounds like, like Mark. Brooklyn. That sounds like Mark. I think he has a recording. He plays like sends himself to sleep every night. He has a little thing by his bed that just sends uh, sirens. That sound sounds there. like Mark. <laughs>